Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in World Affairs. I'm your host, Anna Levy. Today we'll be speaking about Patrick Wolf's book, Traces of History, Elementary Structures of Race, published by Verso Books in 2016. The starting point for Traces of History is the idea that settler colonialism and racial formation are mutually dependent ongoing processes. Building on his previous work in settler colonial studies, Traces of History brings earlier arguments into sharp focus through five cases. Patrick Wolfe passed away in February 2016. The interview we have today is a bit different as I'm joined by two guests, Aziz Rana and Lynette Russell, two of Patrick's many thought partners who bridge conversation about his life and thinking more broadly with the contents of this book. Lynette Russell is director of the Monash Indigenous Center at Monash University in Melbourne. Aziz Rana is a professor of law at Cornell University School of Law in New York. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Lynette and Aziz. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today uh, to discuss the legacy and work of of Patrick Wolfe. This is, it's a pretty different kind of episode for us here at the New Books and World Affairs. Uh, We'll be focusing mostly on his his most recently published book, Traces of History, Elementary Structures of Race. Uh, And while that will be the focus, uh, we absolutely welcome your thoughts about your own work and, and more broadly about Patrick's life. So I'd like to go ahead and get started uh, by asking you to talk a little bit about Patrick's background and how this book is a reflection of it. Patrick's often characterized as a historian, but and this is a piece of history, as, as the would suggest, but I see him as much more than that, um, and I knew him for 25 years, and I see him as, as, as an anthropologist, an ethnographer, and a historian, and this book really is the culmination of all that intellectual work that goes into those areas. And, uh, you know, I suppose just to to add to that, um, you know, in many ways, I really think of Patrick as one of, if not the most important theorist of racial formation over the last few decades. And uh, what he's done is pretty remarkable. So in some of his earlier work, he essentially put the concept of settler colonialism, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about how he conceived of it and its relevant uses on uh, the scholarly map. And today we actually have a really vibrant field of settler colonial studies that cuts across history and political science and anthropology, and that you see, especially, for example, in the U.S., as an increasingly important way of talking about the American experience. But Alongside that, I think he also, uh, his work theoretically, has in a sense responded to a long-standing debate, almost conceptual impasse on how to think about race, where you have two different large-scale approaches. One approach really emphasizes the idea of race as almost a trans-historical category that we can see as a persistent feature of global history from the Enlightenment to the present. 
And then another that really emphasizes, let's say, the material and economic factors that led to the rise of racialization in particular moments in time. And what Patrick Wolf's work has done is by focusing on processes and really complex and distinct processes of colonization, he's been able to show how race both operates transhistorically, but also the contingent and specific material and economic dynamics that generated different forms of um, racialization in different historical settings. And um, that's a really kind of remarkable thing. And in a way, it's highlighted by the two Uber concepts that you see recur throughout his own work, and especially in this book, which is you know, the concepts of labor and land and how labor and land might be operating differently at different moments in time to create different regimes of authority depending on uh, which community is at stake. Could I just add a tiny thing to that? I, I think that, that comment about the, 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 the various locations in which race and colonialism and settler colonialism plays out so incredibly important and it's one of the very patrick is actually one of the very few people that does multi-site research and comparative research at this at this level and at this depth and it makes his work so incredibly important and i ask you you both actually to talk a little bit about about your own work uh, respectively and what role Patrick played in the evolution of your work and your own thinking. Um, and, and, and additionally to that, if you could talk about your, your own connection to the evolution of this book, if, if there was one. A couple of things. What I'd say is uh, I initially kind of met Patrick on the page and it was in the context of my own dissertation. So I, I did a PhD in political science with a focus in political theory. And I was especially interested at the time in working through sort of questions about American political development, so the development of both ideas and institutions in the U.S. experience. And what I wanted to do was to locate the U.S. within global histories of colonialism. And it was maybe at the moment where in history departments and even in political science departments, there was a growing interest in transnational study, in in sort of like world history, but also in questions of empire. But really there, there wasn't like an extensive amount of scholarship that was new scholarship that was devoted to this, um, this work. A lot of the stuff that I was looking at tended to be either historical or political theory uh, writing from the 60s and 70s. And then really I came across Patrick's first book on settler colonialism, and it was absolutely eye-opening. And it was eye-opening for me in precisely the ways in which it allowed me to be able to make comparative assessments and links between the U.S. and a variety of different other kinds of historical experiences, but also how it suggested um, a method of being able to understand distinct historical experiences of subordination within the U.S. In other words, how can we understand the indigenous experience, but also the African-American experience, but also the Asian and Mexican-American experiences as well, where you have different trajectories and histories, different regimes of management and control, and yet seemingly operating in ways that are not inconsistent. And the construction of, of um, 
of Patrick's sort of concept around settler colonialism became a really powerful rubric for me to think about how to make those arguments in the U.S. context. And then, in a sense, after my own book was published, we ended up being in closer conversation, met through conferences, and sort of shared and exchanged work. Uh, and I wouldn't say that I think my, my work had a particularly big influence on Patrick's. I mean, he's been doing this stuff for, for 20 years, but he sort of very graciously incorporated some of my own arguments about how to think of the relationship between indigeneity and enslavement in the U.S. as distinct processes that are tied to a similar project of colonial management. Um, and then also how to think about this question of, well, what does that mean for freedom struggles in the present? So if you have distinct histories of subordination that are serving very different kinds of purposes located in the same political space, then that necessarily entails um, both the importance of anti-racist solidarity and collaboration, but a recognition that what might, re what might generate real emancipation in one community is going to be quite different than another. And maybe we can talk a little bit more about that later. Um, my connection to Patrick out of him being my PhD supervisor, um, I went along uh, very naively, um, having come from an anthropology and archaeology background to do a PhD in history. And I approached Patrick as a potential supervisor and he was, as anyone who knew him, he was always the most enthusiastic person in the room and he was incredibly enthusiastic about the ideas that I had taken with me. At the time, he suggested I read Edward Said and for the next 25 years we, I used to joke with him that I could neither forgive nor utterly repay him for having introduced me to Said's work because it became very much a framework through which I started to do my own analysis, which was looking at, and most of my academic career has been really looking at Aboriginal agency, the ways in which Aboriginal people have chosen um, and responded to various components and aspects of colonialism. The, the, the PhD, which turned into my first book, was really looking at the ways in which Aboriginality, the identity of Aboriginal people, um, and this came, I came to this because I have Aboriginal heritage myself, um, the ways in which um, Aboriginal um, identity had been shaped by the colonial powers rather than by Aboriginal people themselves, and then and an attempt at least to show how Aboriginal people had responded to that and continued to respond, um, particularly today. Um, and I was very interested at the time in things like museums and the ways in which museums were um, effective um, colonising institutions, essentially. Um, so Patrick was just so crucial to my intellectual development. His first book, as as it said, is is such an important book. The the entire um, premise of the logic of elimination um, has really shaped the ways in which my career has developed and the my, ways in which my thinking has developed. I would also go as far to say as I'm, I've probably left it behind now, as many of us have, and I think even to a degree Patrick himself had really moved with this new book, had moved into a very different way of thinking or a, a, more, um, a, a more developed way of thinking about that. So Patrick's work was pivotal and it, it, in many ways it created the, the kind of framework for me to do my analyses and my work. And there's a whole genealogy now of people who were supervised by Patrick 
and then supervised by people who were supervised by Patrick. So I, I, I often joke that, well, he might be our apical ancestor. He's got quite a large, um, an enormous family tree, mm-hmm. a genealogy of scholars, particularly here in Australia. You've both touched on it uh, in, in different ways already, and, and, and now hopefully we can get into it a little bit more, is I'd like to ask you, you know, where where this book and sort of the intellectual place that Patrick had arrived to, this book in particular, where did that fit into the to the wider fields of settler colonial studies and critical race theory? Um, and Aziz, you mentioned, I mean, several other disciplines are in there very, very prominently. I'll stick to those two, but please feel free to respond uh, more broadly than that. And, and, and Lynette, why don't we start with you? Sure. I think in a whole range of ways, Patrick set the scene. He, he, he essentially established the idea of settler colonialism. And I think in many ways, it came out of a, a relative dissatisfaction of the post-colonial movement, um, which, I mean, in the beginning, we were all caught up in the, the ideas of post-colonial theory. And he was like most of us, um, in, in originally quite enamoured of it and then I think began to see that it didn't quite work. Um, so he really developed what became settler colonialism and settler colonial studies uh, out of, I think, in many ways, a sort of a, a, a dissatisfaction with post-colonial theory. The main contribution... Um, There's so many contributions, so I hate to think that I would be narrowing it down. But his main contribution that the to say that settler colonial power requires the destruction of Indigenous people and polities, um, and that in fact the elimination of Indigenous people is a continuous feature of settler colonial societies, and in fact both in Australia and America and elsewhere, that this is not merely something that happened in the past, but it's something that continues to happen. right up until the current um, moment. And he always, the one thing about Patrick was he wasn't interested in an apolitical past. He was really interested in contemporary politics and how the historical trajectory of what he was seeing in the past played out today. And that was terribly important to him. He was an activist at heart. Yeah, just in a way, you know, Continuing with what uh, Lynette said, uh, so one of the things that he he became known for with the first book is this phrase about uh, settler colonialism. So settler colonialism as structure, not event. And there are ways in which I think that thought is a central part of his legacy as a scholar, but also we can see his current book as an effort to make more complex and to kind of work through some of the implications within within that idea. So on the one hand, I think Lynette's absolutely right to say that in a sense, there were three different kind of dominant political and um, scholarly conversations that were taking place in the 1990s around how to think of colonialism. First is post-colonialism. So the relevant question is, you know, the politics of independence and to the extent that the formal transfer of power to elites in the global south means the end of the colonial period and the beginning of a complicated post-colonial present. The second was the language that you saw that dominated 
conversations about race, uh, especially in what you might think of as the settler sibling societies of the U.S. and Canada and Australia. And that was a language about multiculturalism. So the relevant way of thinking about race is through a politics of difference and the capacity of cultural difference to be reconciled within liberal values. And then let's say the third had to do with a persistent blindness of the dominant elements of the discipline that, in a sense, connected to the dominant politics writ large in these same states, uh, to, the, to the very reality of um, a colonial history at all. So the thought that actually what defines places like the U.S. and Australia is that they're, they have their own kind of exceptional histories and they avoided the problems that we associated with Europe. And if anything, they're kind of anti-imperial from the founding. And what Patrick's idea of settler colonialism did by saying it's structure, not event, is to say that, well, no, actually something that links all of these different communities is the effort of particular um, settlers to reconstruct effectively uh, a white society in the non-white world in ways that eliminated um, native presence and cultural identity, and then shape the terms about of legal, political, and economic power. And that this isn't something that just happened in the past, that's about bad origins, but is a persistent feature of how those institutions evolve, even in the quote-unquote liberal present. Now, one thing that kind of emerged out of the conversation about settler colonialism, and something that was a persistent critique of Patrick, and really of the field in general, um, as it developed, was the thought that, well, this concept seems monocausal, that if it's structure, not event, kind of covers potentially everything. And it's very difficult to be able to make sense of historical shifts and changes. The U.S., if we're saying it's still settler colonial, looks different than it might have done, might, might have looked in the past. And how do we understand change? How do we understand the complexity of political disagreement? What do we make of ethnic, let's say, conflicts in places like Europe? Is that too settler colonialism? So there's an issue about, quote-unquote, monocausality. And first, I think this charge was always sort of like inappropriately leveled at Patrick's work to begin with, which is Patrick was developing a concept at the time that's not all that different from other concepts that we use, like capitalism or white supremacy or now neoliberalism that have good and bad variants, the people that are doing it skillfully and people that are doing it less skillfully, but also that the whole purpose of these concepts is in a way to simplify, to take a circumstance of absolute contingency and instead impose some set of arguments that allow us to see precisely structure. And so through seeing structure, allow us politically to understand what types of agency are available now, what types of agency have been available in the past. So, you know, in a way, the whole point is to narrow the field through specific conceptual tools. But to the extent that Patrick took on board this criticism, I think you can see it in the title that he uses for the book. It's Traces of History, Elementary Structures of Race. And settler colonialism is absolutely there throughout the context of the book. But the defining language is increasingly race and colonialism. And the focus especially is on how very different forms of colonization had embedded within them projects that were related to land, how do you manage land, and projects that were related to labor, 
How is it that you create pliable labor supplies in order to be able to constitute regimes of colonization? And by focusing instead on race and colonialism as effectively the central concepts for the new book, what he was able to do is essentially infuse a discourse that had previously been about settler colonialism with a great deal more complexity in terms of examples, in terms of continuities and discontinuities, in terms of being able to see the relationship between contingency and structure, and so really spell out what a politics of agency might be. And to me, that's, a, I think, a significant shift in his own scholarship since the 90s, and it's also a significant shift in a way in terms of where the field, let's say, writ large, is, might be going, but also the kind of creativity that marked his work. Matt, is it all right if I ask a question? Please. Um, cause I, um, is that okay, Anna? Yes, yes, please. Please go for it. So, Aziz, I, I'm, I'm fascinated because... One of the things that always struck me with some of the responses to Patrick's work is it was either effusive in its praise or really very um, hostile. Mm-hmm. And I find it bizarre, to be perfectly frank, because I think um, Patrick was never somebody, he never, he never saw the hostility as personal, which is one of the most marvellous things about him. But I do see him in this book as having responded to it and responded to it in the ways that only he can, that that deeply intellectual, to really problematise his own his own work, to really argue for thinking about this in complex ways and often with very complex language, which is another criticism that people often level at Patrick. But I think what you're saying there is incredibly important that it, this book is and tragically as it as it turned out is the kind of bookend to the work that he started with the um the first book um it, it just strikes me as it shows it maps a trajectory of thinking of intellectualizing to, to be being concerned about agency but at the same time being concerned about the kinds of restrictions on agency and the ways in which it can be facilitated and it strikes me very much that this is a powerful um, and as I say tragically um, bookend to that original work yeah so you know I can only talk in a sense about um, some of the American reception of, of Patrick's work. But the, the first book, and indeed, you, you know, the terms by which Patrick's work was understood um, within the mainstream, to the extent that it was engaged in, in American history and American political science. And I'm going to be talking with a bit broad brushstroke, so I apologize in advance for the ways in which this doesn't capture subtlety. Um, was really, in a sense, built around the place of these fields in the 90s. And perhaps not surprisingly, if the political conversations about multiculturalism difference, the emphasis to the extent that, you know, racialization, racial formation, these issues are being addressed in the mainstay American disciplines was through a language of contingency. So that you know, there was a, a real de-emphasis in history departments, but also you see this in political science departments, so the ones that I feel like I have the most familiar, familiarity with, political science indeed more than, more than history. Um, the real de-emphasis on large-scale, broad historical arc um, narratives, and instead a focus on micro-histories as well as 
what you might think of as micro-theoretical arguments that focus specifically on individual agents or actors at a, at a moment in time. And what the settler colonial frame amounted to at the t- at, you know, when he was really developing it was, frankly, a repudiation of that approach because it is. It's a massive conceptual a- apparatus that can apply transhistorically that sweeps much more broadly than either the micro-histories or the micro-theoretical accounts that, that were much more common. And not surprisingly, there was a fairly massive pushback, and the pushback was based on the idea that there is no space for contingency in the way that he's constructing notions of settler colonialism. And I'd say, again, I think the majority of this critique was always mis place because actually there's a really important space for being able to find structure out of contingency and it it's tied absolutely to Patrick's politics which is if all there is is contingency and all we can do are construct micro histories then it's very difficult to think conceptually about well what kind of politics would produce dramatic social change in order to be able to do that you have to actually have a sense of structure that links different communities that can proceed cross historical period But one thing that it's clear that Patrick took very seriously and has attempted to do really over the last decade, and the book is a long time in the making and has its own, um, you know, really arduous story in terms of its fruition and how it was written and the circumstances um, that led to the length of time before the book came out. But the thing that's clear that Patrick did over the the course of, let's say, the last decade, is to attempt to figure out how to, on the one hand, hold on to the arguments about structure that allow him to be able to make broad historical claims that don't just reduce to micro-histories, while at the same time incorporating contingency, contingency through the differences in the the multi-site, let's say, um, case studies, but also differences... um, within the politics of what you might think of as um, settler colonization in specific locations. Um, and all of this, I think, has ended up producing a, you know, a book that's conceptually masterful, but combines, in a way, um, a politics that allows us to see structure with one that allows us to see, uh, allows us to see competing narratives um, contingent political circumstances and presses against inevitability. And that's why where he ends, he ends with a point about how no matter what, racial formation is always incomplete. And that incompleteness is there's a remainder and the remainder is the condition that allows for projects of liberation. And it is a, it is a more uh, optimistic um, book, I think, particularly towards the end, where I think he does see much more light than perhaps his earlier work would suggest. I, I think that's absolutely the case. And, you know, it's, uh, uh, there are many, many reasons why uh, I wish he was here with us, that um, just a wonderful colleague, friend. Um, but one would be actually also to just work through this, that there's, in a sense, a difference, especially if you're somebody uh, effectively engaged with the politics of the left difference between the experience of writing about questions of race and colonialism in the 1990s and the experience of writing about it today. That it's not just that there's a transformation in the scholarship, but you do see, um, you know, a set of really interesting political formations that have emerged 
that allow the scholarship to connect to contemporary conversation in a way that just wasn't necessarily the case uh, yes. 20 years ago. Yeah. Along the same lines, uh, I mean, you, you two can do this uh, much more easily than I can. You know, Aziz, I wonder if there's there's anything that you would that you would also ask uh, Lynette. So I, I'm actually so one thing that I'm interested in is I'm I'm curious about um, the reception of Patrick's work in Australia, um, the extent to which uh, it's engaged with and by whom, and also um, how the work has been taken up um, by um, indigenous Aboriginal activists. Um, so, because again, like my experience of it is really, in a sense, formed by um, the scholarship and politics of uh, American studies and American political and legal development here in the U.S. I definitely think in Australia, Patrick's work is is and <laughs> will always be of the left, and I think the left within the academy. And I'm not I'm not sort of talking. Um, middle ground left, I'm talking extreme left-wing politics. Um, pa Patrick was ultimately a Marxist, and I think it's really been taken up by people who are still very um, interested in seeing how Marx might play out through the historical discourse of co contemporary Australia. So in that respect, I'd say it's taken up by younger people, by and large. Um, mm -hmm. There are still fairly conservative elements within the historical discipline that I think have real difficulties with Patrick's work, rather. Um, I don't see... I see him having a legacy that is both of what, we, what I might call his descendants, the, 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 the students that have come after him that are really deeply affected and engaged with the work, and certainly in terms of Indigenous uh, writing and Indigenous scholarship and Indigenous activism, he was extremely highly valued. Um, he listened, he always listened, and he he says something, I think it's in the acknowledgements, he talks about his own sort of gauche, um, you know, naivete that he, when he first came to Australia and he was um, educated by, by various Aboriginal people, particularly here in Melbourne. So from the point of view of who's taken up the work. I think it's taken up very much by a younger generation um, who are not necessarily chronologically younger, but, but the next generation, whereas those that have gone ahead before Patrick's work don't seem to be engaging with it or seem often to be hostile to it. Mm. I think part of it is also, can I just add, I think part of it is also that Patrick has an eclectic reading of... Um, history of anthropology, of ethnography, and it's he's quite difficult to pigeonhole, and that's one of the reasons I put in the beginning at the, at the start of this conversation. I said that he was he was actually very interdisciplinary, and he wasn't afraid to read widely across di different disciplines, be it political science, law, or, or or anthropology. As a historian, he was very comfortable in other disciplines, and not all historians are. To, can I just uh, sort of two thoughts that connect to, to Lynette, what you said. First, uh, you know, I do wonder whether or not his um, interdisciplinarity, which wasn't just kind of a conscious decision, but really his, a sensibility. I mean, it's 
it's telling the number of people across different fields that, that now engage with his work. I wonder how much of that is also tied to the fact that he came relatively late in life to academia and was never really sort of conceived of the work as framed around the professional expectations of different disciplines and instead pursued work based on theoretical and scholarly inquiry into the kinds of questions that he viewed as decisive for political life. And that leads to a second thought, which is that, you know, Lynette highlighted this, and I think it's worth uh, underscoring, which is Patrick's Marxism. Um, I, I kind of obliquely referenced this at the beginning where I said that, you know, in a way before Patrick's work, you had these two kind of big competing ways of thinking about race. So it's, you know, race as trans-historical, that there's bl constitutive blackness from the Enlightenment to the present, and then what amounts to a kind of uh, Marxian or class-based analysis that uh, can effectively, um, what you might think of as uh, dissemble or disentangle race into constituent class dynamics. And what Patrick was able to do was to be able to hold on to those, let's say, class-based interests or interests that are tied to the politics of labor formation and economy, but to do it in a way that can that skillfully takes seriously the centrality of, of race as an independent social force that cannot be reduced to, cla to class components or doesn't allow one to sort of easily or simply say that, you know, class is the universal category and, and race has to be understood through projects that are connected to class. And so it's, it's a really, you know, s skillful brand of Marxian analysis that has obviously some connections and overlaps with um, traditions of black Marxism that I might that you might associate with people like um, W.E.B. Du Bois or Eric Williams or uh, Oliver Cromwell Cox um, from the mid 20th century, but that can't also simply be reducible to to uh, African American modes of of Marxist thought, and so that's another kind of tremendous contribution of the work. I completely agree, and I think if 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 our, if my students want to go and read Marx after reading Patrick's work, then it's been an extraordinarily successful um, exercise. So one thing I'd like to 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 put out there uh, along those lines is that you know through. Through each case, Patrick is illustrating a context-specific construction of race. And at one point, he describes a spectrum of what he calls racial solubility um, across the various cases. And so he says in in, in Brazil, uh, indigenous is an insoluble, insoluble category. In Australia, indigenous is a soluble category. Uh, in Brazil, African is a soluble category. And in the U.S., African is an insoluble category. So drawing on this idea of his interdisciplinary approach and background and, and Aziz, to, to your point uh, just now about the various kind of things that he was able to thread together in a way that wasn't quite as common, um, philosophies, ways of thinking, bending and, and, and integrating. How would you both talk about this idea, uh, both from Patrick's perspective and, and as he lays it out in the book uh, about racial solubility? talking both about race and class and economic settler colonialism. And 
yeah, I'll start. I'll start there. So, oh, uh, should I jump in? Yeah, or? go for it. Please, please, please. Yeah. So, what I'd say, maybe this is a simplified way of um, addressing the question, it allows us to talk a little bit about the specifics of the book. Um, for me, when I was a graduate student, and let's say for graduate students and young scholars that are reading his work, I think, in a way, one of the most important achievements is to be able to make sense of something that, you know, in a way before Patrick's work didn't really make a ton of sense. And we can see this through the different regimes of authority that apply for Native peoples and for African Americans. So how do we make sense of the fact that um, for Native communities at different moments in time in the U.S., and you can make this the same argument about um, Indigenous people in Australia, that you had projects that were built around assimilation. In other words, that actually what you want to do over time is transform those communities into quote-unquote white or mainstream communities. And yet, at the same time, for African Americans in the U.S. in the post-Civil War period, so after emancipation, there is the emergence of a strong commitment to the so-called one-drop rule, where it's a politics of exclusion rather than assimilation. And that doesn't necessarily make sense as something that, you know, we would think of as continuous, especially if your pre-existing view is effectively that, well, these are all different racial communities and they deal with various problems of um, exclusion. So why the distinction in these settings? And in a way, that's what he means by solubility and insolubility. Insolubility for African-Americans, a kind of solubility for indigenous people. And the argument that Patrick makes is that the way to understand this is to recognize that these are communities that are differently situated within the polity. So an African-American community is a community <clears throat> whose labor is being expropriated or extracted to serve internal colonial ends. Indigenous community is a community whose land is being expropriated to serve internal ends. And that produces a very different set of ongoing relationships. That if the land is being taken, then the thing that's being denied is the idea that this is a community that is an independent political entity that's occupying the same landmass. And so in that setting, you want assimilation because assimilation eliminates the existing political claim to self-determination. If, on the other hand, we have a community whose labor is being extracted, then the whole point, in a sense, is to maintain racial difference, uh, a politics of exclusion, because assimilation ends up undermining the ability to be able to perpetuate or sustain regimes of labor extraction. And this point that's, in a way, fairly straightforward has really deep-seated implications. It allows us to recognize why, for example, simply providing, quote-unquote, inclusion and equal citizenship for indigenous communities is, in fact, creating regimes that amount to social death for those very communities because it denies their self-determination, while at the same time, a politics of equal citizenship for African Americans might entail practices that are consistent with forms of freedom for African Americans. Um, and this is all work that I think his analysis does really beautifully in a way that I don't think we've really seen paired together 
previously. I definitely think the, the idea of assimilation in the Australian context was one that Patrick had given an enormous amount of thought to and in an, a sophisticated thought that actually um, is now, I think most people would actually accept it as just being a, a, a fa almost a standard view, such as the, the impact of his thinking. Um, but the idea that you could define a group who lived on the land, who were of the land, as he says, of the land, in a manner and a way that would remove them from the land in the Australian context onto missions and reservations and the like, at the same time as keeping the land for themselves. And the multitude of ways in which that he demonstrates that this happens time and time again is, is quite breathtaking. And I really feel that it's going to last. This is, this is work that is truly going to last. And while I think he's had a huge impact on the last 20 years of our thinking, I can only imagine how much of an impact this book is going to have on the next 20. Can you, can you elaborate a little bit? I, I, what are some ways that you, that you see this book having that impact and, and this argument in particular, what he's laying out? Part of, part of my interest or part of my concern is that it's the comparative component of it. What he's showing with this book is, in which he didn't do with the first book so much, is the ways in which this is played out across different localities. So, and then of course he does compare it um, in a very sophisticated way, compares it to the situation in Palestine and Israel. And my feeling is that what we're getting here is uh, a model, almost like a paradigm that basically posits that the experiences of Indigenous people, while they're quite different across the globe, there are similarities and there are ways in which we can read them that resonate across multiple locations. And this is, this is that sounds, I know that sounds, that sounds rather um, pale compared with what the actual arguments are, but the main thing that I think I take from this is that he shows that these are ideas, race, the construction of race and, and all that goes with it, these are ideas that, that have a genealogy of many hundreds of years but are still playing out today. And I think what he says ultimately, that the, the, the bit that I really do hold on to is, in a sense, if race had a beginning, then maybe it will have an end. Mm. And uh, the only thing that I would add is I also think... Um, you know, it's it's the book itself is also just a model in some ways of where one could imagine uh, global histories, but not just histories, global uh, political stu uh, political studies as well of of race going, which is um, he's providing a, he's providing a, a a frame for how you could actually write work that's comparative and transnational at the same time, by drawing from a variety of different cases with different regimes of colonization, highlighting continuous threads, highlighting discontinuous threads. Um, and effectively what I think it's doing is it's modeling scholarship for a younger generation that are increasingly interested with you know, big arc narratives, questions of empire and capitalism. Well, here is an example of how you can take seriously questions of empire and capitalism, make big arc 
um, claims within the context of being able to specify difference. And so that's one reason why I think the book is going to last. And I can already tell just by the number of, you know, young scholars that I know that are reading the book or have, you know, spoken to me about the book without knowing that I have any kind of relation or had any kind of relationship with Patrick. One of the questions that that I'd like to to close with is actually it's 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 clear from everyone he's ever interacted with and and most of his work that he did live a life of scholarship and a life of solidarity and I I would ask both of you how he how he was able to hold those two together and and how he was a model in that sense as well for for folks who were doing work on both sides of the aisle both in academia and and as activists it's a it's a tricky question to be honest, Anna, because uh, Patrick never held a tenured position. Um, he went from fellowship to fellowship, and there were periods in between of of essentially unemployment and financial hardship. And through all of that, he never lost the integrity that he held to be so important. So he never played the games that the rest of us have to play being part of a corporate university. He didn't do any of that. So he was so committed to the work that he would prefer to stay unemployed than, and, and do the work, the writing and the activism, than to have to follow in the, um, the corporate sector of the university, which unfortunately most of us have to do at some point. So from that point of view, he, he's the model, absolutely, but it's he, he himself would say it was a different sort of career to what most academics might expect or hope for. Just, just to add to that, in a way, I think um, that precisely because of the difficulties that he faced in being able to combine the two, um, that in a sense... He's, he ended up producing work that has the quality of shaping these various fields. Mm -hmm. And the work itself provides a basis for students today to say, okay, well, there are these, these kind of like constitutive classic books that I can use in my own scholarship um, that have, that are, you know, increasingly also broadly recognized as land, landmark books that allow young scholars to follow that path without necessarily having to deal with the particular kinds of difficulties that he faced um, at a moment when, you know, there wasn't, let's say, an established field in settler colonial studies, or you, you had you didn't have examples like the work that he has that he ended up generating of the way that you can combine these different fields. And so I think the scholarship effectively is now providing space for new scholars to be able to produce work and find purchase, you know, um, uh, locations in universities, but also to be able to engage in um, political activism in a way that, you know, might not have been available for him. Effectively, what it does is it lays out these tremendous case studies with a clear conceptual scaffolding that scholars can use, engage, interrogate, and then apply to various other kinds of settings. And so um, another thing that's a kind of odd consequence of like the, the difficult journey that, um, that might have taken place over the last decade is I think it, it produced, at the end of the day, a work that's going to stand the test of time.
I really liked, uh, I really appreciated how you put it before Lynette, as far as the, you know, the genealogy of all the, the people who came after him and, and this being a really important and I think appropriate note to end on. Um, I really want to thank you both again so much for, for joining and for having this conversation. And before we wrap up, I do just want to invite you to, is there anything else that you'd like to say that, that came up as we were chatting or that you'd like to add? Certainly, the world's much poorer for passing Patrick's passing, and it's not just the the, the work. Um, for those of us that knew him, um, it was his insistence on deep thinking um, and deep political commitment. So, in the future, all those people we're talking about, they will know the work. What they won't know is his passion, his love of life, and loyalty, or the just the energy that he brought to any situation he was in and he will be missed and I certainly miss him terribly. Much can be written and recorded about Patrick Wolf's contributions, whether intellectual or human. Conveying his legacy is a role and job that only his students, colleagues, friends, family and partners in change can appropriately take on. Anchored around his book, Traces of History, today's conversation benefited greatly from not one, but three intellectual journeys. Thanks for listening today. Sou ano arumando dias após sentir na pela mares e deixar sua assinatura de sol na cara como uma pintura 